coming up on Ibogaine Uncovered. I would like to see like more of that sort of influx of interest in the real traditional knowledge and real connection to indigenous medicine. I would like to see that less diluted actually by what the other things that are going on, which I know need to go on, but I do feel that it is a sort of process where perhaps as time goes on with this process that actually it becomes something which is sort of founded in indigenous medicine and has a little bit of the other stuff on the side. You know what I mean? It's Instead of it being the other way around, I would like to see this sort of movement really being based and rooted in the, those traditions, which are is really the way that it is. My name is Amanda Siebert, and you're listening to I Begin Uncovered, the podcast that explores the impact of one of the most powerful psychedelic medicines on the planet. Can Ibogaine really get to the root of our trauma? Join me as I ask practitioners, patients, researchers, and specialists about their experiences. Welcome back to Ibogaine Uncovered. I'm your host, Amanda Siebert, and this episode is going to be a little bit different. Last week, I traveled to Denver, Colorado to attend the fourth MAPS Psychedelic Science Conference with more than 12,000 other psychedelic enthusiasts, many of whom were there to talk about and share their work related to Ibogaine. My mission in attending was to learn as much as I could in the time that I was there about where this drug is at, not just from a medical or political standpoint, but from a cultural one too. I wanted to hear firsthand from people who are critical to the support we see for Ibogaine treatment and therapy, and from advocates who are doing the challenging work of ensuring that this medicine is harvested and used in a sustainable way. In this episode, I'm going to cover a lot of ground, including three ongoing Ibogaine studies and the researchers behind them, Lucy Walker's latest film, Of Night and Light, the story of Iboga and Ibogaine, and the long overdue recognition of Norma Lotsoff. I'm also going to go over the role of veterans in relation to psychedelic policy and talk about recent efforts in Kentucky to study Ibogaine for opioid use disorder. As well, I'm going to go over the implications of increased Ibogaine use in North America for communities in Gabon, where Iboga is harvested, and the important work of the nonprofit organization Blessings of the Forest. In the previous episode featuring David Bronner, I asked whether he thought we would ever see the mainstreaming of Ibogaine like we're currently seeing with psilocybin and MDMA. If the concentration of discussion on Ibogaine at the MAPS conference in Denver was any indication, I would say that the answer to that question is yes. A quick search of the word Ibogaine on the Psychedelic Science app ahead of the conference revealed 10 sessions that mentioned Ibogaine. Some of those discussions focused on ongoing studies and clinical research, including one with Dr. Nolan Williams a Stanford researcher who revealed the results of his study of Ibogaine in special operations veterans with traumatic brain injury and PTSD. The study is the first to look at Ibogaine for traumatic brain injury in veterans, and based on Dr. Williams' presentation, it showed some remarkable results. Results so remarkable, he noted that when he first read them, he had his postdoc immediately rewrite them. So what are these results? 
using a combination of MRIs and observational study from three days to six months post-treatment, their research showed a steady leveling of symptoms in participants following a single ibogaine flood treatment. So from three days post-treatment to six months post-treatment, one dose. The single treatment also led to increases in neuroplasticity and decreases in depression and anxiety among the veterans who participated in the study. But one of the most remarkable things that he was able to show was the objective increase in the mass of white matter in the brain. Dr. Williams called this the Benjamin buttoning of the brain by 1.37 years. So yes, like the movie, effectively, the brain is getting younger. Williams said he was speechless about his results and called Ibogaine the most sophisticated pharmacological agent in the world. That's a pretty bold statement from a researcher who admitted to the audience that when he started this research, he had serious doubts. Another session with Dr. Jose Carlos Boso also considered the results of a pilot study, this time one in which Ibogaine was used for methadone detoxification. The phase two study of Ibogaine for methadone dependence aimed to validate a safe clinical protocol for detox purposes. Now, the reason this is interesting is it's the first study to look at methadone and Ibogaine, methadone being a long-acting synthetic opioid prescribed to treat opioid addiction. Oso is a psychologist, pharmacologist, and the scientific director of ICERS, the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research, and Service, and he's conducting this study in Spain. The study used a different approach from the typical flood dose we hear about most often with Ibogaine. Instead, evaluating the safety and efficacy of low doses of Ibogaine given on a weekly basis for six weeks. The 20 participants were divided into two groups, a group that received six doses of Ibogaine at 100 milligrams each, and a group that received six doses that start with 100 milligrams and increase by 100 milligrams with each subsequent dose. Hopefully, I'll have the opportunity to have Dr. Boso and Dr. Williams on the show on separate occasions to have them discuss the results of their work in more detail. At the conference, I attended a live session featuring a previous Ibogaine uncovered guest, Dr. Deborah Mash. It was a privilege to sit in the front row and hear Dr. Mash discuss her study of oral Ibogaine in opioid withdrawal and relapse prevention. In her talk, she covered a lot of the information we discussed on the show a few weeks ago, but I also learned something new about a study Dr. Mash is currently involved with in the UK. Dr. Mash reminded the audience that the dark side of Ibogaine has slowed the regulatory development. The dark side she's referring to here are the adverse cardiac events that have resulted in instances of improper screening and treatment using Ibogaine. What we're talking about are the deaths that have resulted. And as a result, safety studies need to be reconducted. The study that Dr. Mash's company, Demerex, is involved in uses healthy volunteers and will be step one before researchers can study how Ibogaine works to detoxify opioid users again. I look forward to discussing these results with Dr. Mash on the show in the future. Ibogaine wasn't just represented in the research tracks at the conference. It was also the star of a film by Lucy Walker called Of Night and Light, the story of Iboga and Ibogaine, which she screened at the Tribeca Film Festival just days before the conference. It was screened again at MAPS, and I had the privilege of meeting Lucy and Norma Lotsoff, another star of the film. Norma Lotsoff is a trailblazing advocate and practitioner of Ibogaine treatment. She came of age in the 1960s in New York City, 
with her husband, Howard Lotsoff, a fellow pioneer in psychonautic exploration and NYU film school graduate. You might remember Howard's name from the episode I recorded with Dr. Thomas Kingsley Brown. We talked about his story and his discovery of Ibogaine as a sort of drug in the 1960s. I also had the privilege of meeting Dr. Brown in person at the conference at this Q&A session with Norma. Before I get to that, let's talk about the film. Of Night and Light, the story of Iboga and Ibogaine tells the powerful stories of Howard and Norma Lotsoff, who campaigned their whole lives to get the government and medical establishment to pay attention to the therapeutic potential of Ibogaine, after Howard first noticed in 1962 that an experimental trip with it left him free of his heroin addiction and turn off the drug permanently. Norma is alive to this day, now aged almost 90. The film shows how their work spread across the world as their clinic spawned other clinics where opiate addicts, trauma survivors, and now elite special ops veterans and first responders, traumatized and suicidal following their service, make a desperate last-ditch attempt to save themselves by turning to the psychedelic medicine. The film also tells the stories of the scientist heroes who are fighting to have Ibogaine approved by the FDA and the treatment facilities in Mexico and Costa Rica that are already saving lives. In the film, Lucy and crew also travel to Gabon, which is where the aboga shrub from which Ibogaine is produced grows. There they follow some stories of people who experience healing from aboga in the Bwiti spiritual tradition, in which aboga is a sacred medicine. There's a happy ending to the story. Howard and Norma's dream of the government and medical establishment to start recognizing and researching aboga's potential to alleviate suffering at a mass scale is finally being realized in 2023 as new studies reveal its astounding therapeutic properties. Attending a Q&A session with Norma Lotsoff and watching Lucy's film gave me new insight into Ibogaine. Here, in one film, was the encapsulation of the rich culture associated with aboga, the story of how Ibogaine made its way to North America, and its clinical applications. At a conference that some have dubbed the Rick Doblin Show, I want to give MAPS props for recognizing Norma Lotsoff during the conference's closing ceremony. Watching Lucy Walker bring Norma on stage and seeing the crowd rise to their feet in a standing ovation brought tears to my eyes, and hers too. I was grateful to see Norma's contribution to the psychedelic movement recognized, and I can't wait for the world to learn about her through Lucy's film. Here's a clip of Norma speaking on Ibogaine at the closing ceremony. And I hope that people continue to use this medicine to treat people who need assistance, who can't get it. That methadone is not doing it for them. Suboxone is not doing it for them. And I hope Ibogaine will. I've run into a lot of people since I've been here who said that it did save their lives and it changed their lives. And that makes me very happy. One aspect of Ibogaine Lucy's film highlighted was its growing use among veterans. There was a heavy presence of vets at the MAPS conference, including former Navy SEAL Marcus Capone, who David Bronner spoke about in our last episode. Ibogaine has played a critical role in Marcus' journey 
and he was at the conference with an organization called VETS, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. Marcus has generously agreed to chat with me on a future episode of the show, so stay tuned for that. Now, however you might feel about war, veterans are a critical part of the psychedelic landscape in America. While he was certainly an unlikely guest at the conference, it was a veteran's experience that turned Rick Perry, the self-proclaimed dark, knuckle-dragging, right-wing Republican former governor of Texas, onto psychedelics. He was present at the conference's opening ceremony alongside Colorado Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat. Perry told the crowd, The idea that he and I are together is a bit of magic. The reason I'm on the stage today, and hopefully a lot of you are this way, is because you had the courage to understand that your reputation is not more important than these young people's lives, Perry said, presumably referring to the overdose crisis. Let's look at what the results are. Let's not look at what the government tells us. Let's not look at what somebody tells us is right and wrong. Interesting words from a former politician. I wasn't present to hear it, but word from another journalist is Rick was asked at some point a series of questions on his personal interest in psychedelics. The conversation went something like this. Have you ever done psychedelics? Rick was asked. He answered with no. If you were ever to do psychedelics, which one would interest you? Perry's answer? I began. This blew my mind a bit. It reminded me of a conversation I had with another Rick Doblin in 2021 as I was writing my book, Psyched, Seven Cutting-Edge Psychedelics Changing the World. In that conversation, Rick explained to me why the veteran population has been so critical to gaining political support for psychedelic research, particularly when it comes to MDMA for PTSD. It's a sympathetic patient population with bipartisan support, he says. The next part of our conversation didn't make it into the book, but Rick said he hoped that after MDMA, Ibogaine would be the next psychedelic drug to be scheduled and regulated. He reiterated this idea at the conference. Now, there's a reason to believe that this might happen. Let's take Kentucky, for example. Last month, the Kentucky Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission announced a $42 million state-funded initiative to explore Ibogaine. There's reason to believe that this might happen. Let's take Kentucky, for example. Last month, the Kentucky Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission announced a $42 million state-funded initiative to explore Ibogaine and psychedelic-assisted therapy to combat the opioid crisis. The commission consists of government officials, healthcare professionals, law enforcement representatives, and community leaders who work together to develop strategies, policies, and initiatives to address the opioid epidemic in the state. The fact that they are talking about Ibogaine is huge. Brian Hubbard, chairman of the commission and special counsel to Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, was present at the conference to talk about what will happen next. He shared that while Kentucky has a population of 4.6 million people, between January 1st of 2017 and May 26th of 2023, Kentucky's Medicaid program has paid for 101 million doses of Suboxone with a cost of $1 million to the state. He called the initiative an intention to pursue the physical and spiritual emancipation of our people in Kentucky, who will go first in what will hopefully become a movement to pursue the physical and spiritual emancipation of our country. Powerful words. 
there are still several steps that need to be taken, including organizing public hearings and collecting stakeholder feedback. But the hope is that a research grant will be announced in early 2024, one that would give researchers an opportunity to develop an ibogaine therapy model specific to opioid use disorder. If Rick Doblin is right, and if ibogaine is the next psychedelic to follow the path to regulation, what are the implications of all this exposure? What impact will it have on the regions of the world where aboga is not just a single molecule medicine, but a sacrament, a rite of passage, a teacher, an ally? This podcast is called Ibogaine Uncovered, but I can't forget that Ibogaine comes from iboga. And iboga is a traditional sacrament of the Bwiti practicing peoples of Gabon and Cameroon. To answer the question of what will happen when this medicine receives so much exposure, I'll reference the important work of an organization whose founders and directors I was very humbled to meet in Denver. On invitation from Tricia Eastman and Joseph Barsuglia, I attended an event highlighting the work of George Gasita and David Nassim of Blessings of the Forest, whom had traveled from Gabon and London, England, to be at the conference. Blessings of the Forest supports environmental and traditionalist associations, indigenous communities, and administrative authorities committed to the preservation and sustainable development of Gabon's natural culture and heritage. It does that by leaning on the Nagoya Protocol, an international treaty to ensure that the commercialization of genetic or plant material of indigenous communities is done with consultation, benefit sharing, and through sustainable practices. It came into effect in 2012 for 92 signatory nations. The United States is not one of them. George and David spoke of how this recent international treaty may help shape the future of aboga in Gabon and beyond. We're trying to create a clear line between indigenous people whose medicine iboga is, the governments of Gabon, and the end users in the international arena, said David. The idea is to make sure that line is a strong, clear line. It's not broken. It's an idea, really, of community, of connecting a genetic resource all the way through to your children. That's one way of looking at it. We try to create that line and make sure that there is always a connection to the origin and that there is benefit sharing that really respects the root of the traditions, where everybody benefits. George shared how Blessings of the Forest works directly with 13 different communities in Gabon, helping them to preserve their traditional knowledge by creating village-based iboga plantations. 60 to 70% of revenue from the sale of the iboga will go directly to the village, with the remainder going back into Blessings of the Forest for future projects. This is how the organization supports communities in Gabon. But it's not the only way. George is responsible for the legal aspect of the organization, and his work with Aboga is deeply embedded in his lineage. His grandfather, Professor Jean-Noël Gassita, was a renowned elder and authority on Aboga research and the honorary president of Blessings of the Forest. He was the first Gabonese scholar to study Ibogaine and the first Gabonese person to extract Ibogaine from the Aboga shrub. In the 1990s, Howard and Norma Lotsoff, whom I mentioned earlier, traveled to visit Jean-Noël. He passed away in 2022 at the age of 88. At the conference, I got to witness Norma and Jean-Noël's grandson, George, meet. Talk about a full circle moment. 
The work of organizations like Blessings of the Forest, ICERS, and the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund cannot be overstated. And yet, it feels like even at the biggest psychedelics conference in the world, where this conversation should be front and center, it's being ignored. I had the opportunity to speak with David on the floor of the conference, and I asked him why it was important for him and George to make the long trip to Denver to represent Blessings of the Forest in the physical. I think because there's a missing context that Blessings of the Forest can bring in, what I've noticed is that there's a lot of context that is around psychedelics in America and the issues that are happening in America, especially when we're talking about Iboga and Ibogaine, when you've got, you know, so many people going through opioid crisis and there being such a huge problem that's going on. The context gets really focused on that. And while that is very important and vital and needs to be looked at, there is a context which is larger than the US. And what we try to bring in is that actually these medicines come from somewhere and that there is indigenous rights and traditions which are associated with those medicines. And it's very important that there is a connection to that, that there is a nod to that, that there is a a real uh, looking at that and actually saying, this is important and it needs to have reciprocity. So we, we engage with that in Blessings of the Forest with the Nagoya Protocol. I mean, the Nagoya Protocol can be described in many different ways, but the way that I've recently decided to talk about it for ease is, in a way, it's kind of like creating community. Basically, there are three parts to Nagoya. You've got the traditional people on the ground that are growing the medicine, that, whose tradition it is, belongs to. You've got the Gabonese governments and the governmental structures. And then you've got the end user. And what it is about is that there's a call, really, from the end user that actually wants to make a connection all the way to the origin. They want to do that. They want to make a connection. They don't want to take that medicine and extract that medicine. They want to make a connection all the way through. And it's in a way like connecting to family, you know, and connecting to a kind of genetic line. You know, and that's really what the, the Nagoya Protocol is about. It's actually kind of respecting that genetic line and kind of go, I'm not going to steal from my grandmother. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, make a connection to her, make sure that she's kind of well and strong and she's got what she needs. And actually that's going to provide me with knowledge and understanding and, and medicine in the future. You know, so that's the kind of picture that we want to kind of create with Blessings of the Forest, that actually it's a sort of extension of a, a community which is inclusive of a larger picture. And that's what I think is what Blessings of the Forest can bring in this, you know, a little bit of that into this arena. Then I asked David how he'd like to see the psychedelic movement shift. I would like to see like more of that sort of influx of interest in the real traditional knowledge and real connection to indigenous medicine. I would like to see that less diluted actually by what the other things that are going on, which I know need to go on, but I do feel that it is a sort of process where perhaps as time goes on with this process that actually it becomes something which is sort of 
founded in indigenous medicine and has a little bit of the other stuff on the side. You know what I mean? It's, instead of it being the other way around, I would like to see this sort of movement really being based and rooted in the, those traditions, which are, is really the way that it is. You mm -hmm. know, we are appropriating traditions that have been around for thousands of years and medicine that has been around for thousands of years. My focus in my life has been in Chinese medicine, and so that's really where I come from. But that's an indigenous medicine, and, and it relates to all of these other medicines that we're, we're, we're talking about and connecting to. And I think that really is the, the way of looking at things energetically, which is what all of these traditional medicines are about, I think is the future. I think that it's a way of seeing and a way of connecting, which is much more inclusive of everything and something that science has not yet really understood. In a way, my feeling is that what quantum science is going to be in, in the future is going to start to look very much closer, as time goes on, it's going to look closer and closer like traditional understanding. And traditional understanding is not far behind, it's way ahead of, of what, what we have with it, within it, scientific models that we have at the moment, which is still very separate here, especially when it comes to sort of biology and chemistry. Physics is going a little bit further and making those kind of bigger steps and that's really where there is actually more of a connection between what we see in the traditional knowledge. So I hope that it moves towards that and includes that and expands that part of, its, of what it's doing. If there was one major takeaway that I took from this conference, it was precisely what David said that there is so much work for the folks committed to the growth of the psychedelic space to learn from traditional knowledge and traditional knowledge keepers. It feels like we're on the surface and there are layers for us to pull back. If we believe that psychedelics allow us to go deeper, then the question I pose to the entire psychedelic space and the challenge I put to myself is why aren't we doing it? These discussions on access, control, stewardship, and dare I say, reciprocity, are the next level, and they're not going away. Beyond the headlines centering celebrities using psychedelics, the rush to create new molecules, and the desire to monetize healing, there are people like George and David, working to preserve the traditional knowledge on which all of this other stuff is being built. I'd like to thank everyone I got to meet at this conference. Your passion and commitment to this work has encouraged me to move more slowly and think more critically. Before I end this episode, I'd like to share a story. On the last day of the conference, Ken Jordan, an editor at Lucid News, invited me to participate in a panel on a small stage at the back of the exhibit hall with other journalists. I didn't anticipate that many folks would show up, but I was excited by the opportunity and I made my way to the stage. I think there were about three people in the audience. And I don't blame anyone for not being there. There were a lot of cool things going on at this conference. I learned afterwards that two of the three people in the audience were Carolyn Garcia, the widow of Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, and Sunshine Kesey, the daughter of Carolyn and Ken Kesey. Wild, right? It gets wilder. Carolyn told me about an awful, accidental experience she had with Ibogaine in the early 60s before the acid tests. While working in a research lab at Stanford University, a supervisor handed her some Ibogaine to store, and against his advice, she tried some. Probably too much. 
Even though she says it was an awful experience, it set her on the path to leaving her academic career at Stanford University and setting out on the road with the Merry Pranksters. I love attending conferences for the breadth of knowledge and the opportunity to meet people I've only ever known as bibliographical resources. But I also love it for these moments in between. The opportunity to meet people like Carolyn, who reminded us that laughter was a really important ingredient to the psychedelic experience, and countless other folks who told me about life-changing experiences they've had with Ibogaine and with Aboga. Now that it's over and I've caught up on my sleep, I'm feeling renewed yet nervous, hopeful yet curious, exhilarated yet cautious. There are so many things to consider as we try to answer the question of what path Ibogaine is on and how the decisions that are being made around its access affect everyone, from the small groups of people who carefully steward it to the enormous number of people who could benefit from its healing abilities. You've been listening to Ibogaine Uncovered. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Spotify and Apple, leave a review, or share it with your friends. This podcast is brought to you by Beyond and produced by Eamon Armstrong, mixed by Trevor Coulter and edited by Ariel Villafane. Beyond is the world's premier network of medically-based Ibogaine treatment facilities for addiction, depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Beyond's mission is to help people end chemical and behavioral dependency and to end the suicide epidemic with psychotherapeutic treatment and psychedelic plant medicine innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute medical advice and does not necessarily reflect Beyond's views on mental health treatment or personal development. For inquiries and further information, please visit beyondibogaine.com and make an inquiry using the web form or email beyond at hello at beyondibogaine.com.